The steam curtain comes up, and you lose the yellow shirt for a minute. You'll be a hero real quick if you have the fold handle in the wrong position, so check that. Spread them, five potatoes, and you're all set. Okay, wipe out. The engines come up. See that they match. The safety guys jump up and make sure the beer cans are down. Tension signal. Hands you off to the shooter, and then... Head back and four Gs. Grab the towel rack, touch the ejection seat handle, and make sure you're not sitting on it. If you lose an engine on the cat, stroke the blowers. 12 to 14, not to exceed 16. Rad alt, you see you're descending. The wiser man will grab the handle. You're listening to the podcast, so there I was. It's how every great aviation tale begins. This is episode 18. Every great aviation tale. <laughs> What's the title of this one, Fig? Best job in the galaxy. Yeah, not the world. The galaxy. The galaxy, yeah. Told by Nasty. It was such a good interview, we had to split it into two. He goes on to tell some more amazing stories, including the time that he jumped out of an F-14 as a rank. Which was a surprise because I didn't expect him to tell that story. I didn't know that he jumped out of one. No, no. And that's a good story, too. It was a very good story. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, let's see, what else? Uh, he talked about going to nuke school. A whole bunch of young ensigns and, and, and four old guys. Hard. <laughs> Hard. <laughs> yeah. What a class act. Yeah. What a class Absolutely. act. Absolutely. So much fun. My only sad thing to say is eventually this interview ends, and I never wanted it to end because I wanted to hear more and more. We're going to have him back. Just buckle in and listen to the rest of this. You're going to enjoy the time we spend with Nasty. Episode 18. Here it comes. Word is you did a couple other things uh, before you uh, before you left the Navy. Um, you, you had uh, XO of an aircraft carrier, uh, CO of an oiler, uh, or a support ship, uh, doing doing unreps, which to me, uh, I, I was on board the USS Austin uh, doing Northern Wedding Bold Guard and watching unreps, which is underway replenishments, refueling supplies, that looks as dangerous or more dangerous to me than formation flying, albeit at eight knots, ten knots. Um, how those massive ships don't smack into each other in uh, in rough seas is, is pretty impressive, to say the least. So you got to command one of those ships and then went on to uh, command the Nimitz and a strike group commander aboard the Ike. So I have to ask, what was uh, the most difficult job, being an XO or a CO, and and uh, then I'll follow on with, uh, and I know Fig will have a bunch of questions too, but uh, what what was the coolest job or the coolest thing you got to see or do uh, in in uh, each of those billets? Cause, uh, and also, v, you were commander of VF-31 too, so an F-14 squadron commander as well. Yeah, well, a lot, a lot to unpack there. So uh, I Sorry. did get to, uh, I did earn squadron command of, of VF-31 Tomcatters, um, Flying F-14Ds, uh, my first command, and, and uh, that was awesome. I mean, I had a blast. Uh, my entire career, I, I I just was on a cycle of operations. So my I did 15, 15 extended deployments, six months or greater. You know, I just happened to show up at the squadron, and, we're, and right, the timing was we're going to do a deployment, then a workup, then a deployment. A lot of guys we commanded, they do mostly workups and maybe one deployment. But I, I was 
lucky enough to so we in my bf31 tour my xo ride on carl vinson my co ride on nimitz and my striker command we deployed a lot um I, and i was so i was lucky enough to operate and um so bf31 uh started out at miramar when i was xo and then home port changed single-sided tomcats to oceana still flew west coast cruises uh with 31 on carl vinson and on uh on abraham lincoln so back on back on those two so I commanded that squadron, which was awesome. That's what I've been trained to do. Then I went to the Pentagon, got selected for nuclear power. Did not want to go. I won't waste your time with that story. Didn't want to go. Got kind of forced into it. And the best thing that ever happened. Um, new power school is really hard. It's really hard. And you're, you're going through as a 42-year-old commander with, uh, you know, there were four of us, uh, prospective executive officers in a class, and there were 50 ensigns in the same class. And you got to learn all that stuff yourself. Uh, so that you qualify to, you know, command or be part of the leadership triad with XO, the reactor officer, and the CO for, you know, the <laughs> on our carriers. And then the next thing you do out of school, so school's about a year and a half, and then you go be the executive officer of an aircraft carrier. That is a hard job. That is that is a hard job. But as as I'll relate the story, I was walking with uh, a guy named Skids Pennington, who ended up. Uh, he's an admiral now, and he ended up going to nuke school out of VF-14, VFA-14. And uh, he said, hey, hey, XO, so I'm thinking about this nuke thing, but, man, you know, you must get calls all hours of the night. I mean, like, you never get any sleep, you know, all kind of stuff. And I said, yeah, I do, and I don't get any sleep. But whatever I tell them on the phone, that's what they do. Buck stops with me. First time ever in my Navy career that I controlled what happened. And that's pretty rewarding to get to own the whole ship. And there's a really funny story. If you're the XO and you want a thousand, you know, want a thousand people from the crew to muster on the hangar bay, you just get them to call it out, muster a thousand people on the hangar bay. If the captain of the carrier wants to muster a thousand people in the crew, he calls the XO. So <laughs> it's kind of a funny, funny story. Right. Um, then, uh, I went, I went directly from the XO of Carl Vinson where I kind of learned how to drive a big ship under the captain's tutelage. And they gave me what's called a deep draft command. And that was Sacramento, this fast store ship. So in those days, the deep drafts were either uh, one of the L ships like Austin uh, or a supply ship. And you really wanted a supply ship because it gave you a lot of experience in underwear replenishment, which is what you just talked about. And, and what happens in underway replenishment is the supply ship, you know, he's the guide. He's the one that maintains course, and it's 13 knots through the water. That's the speed. Okay. And the carrier or the destroyer or the L ship comes alongside. And oftentimes we have ships on both sides. So a carrier on the port side, always on the port side because the carrier's island is on the starboard side of the carrier. So you need to have that visibility there. And then we have something else on the, on the starboard side of, of the Ike. I mean, starboard side of Sacramento. And what you do is you shoot lines across with M1 rifles and they, and they take a, a small uh, uh, kind of a line across where you, you pull the bigger lines. You end up connecting the bigger lines in between ships and then they, they pull a pad eye across for each of those lines and then you hook it up. And so you might have, you might have uh, three refueling rigs and, and up to four um, uh, Conrep rigs all tensioned up across the ships with enough tension to dragging the, the, either the fuel hoses or the supplies across without those wires sagging. And the rigs are designed to hold tension even while the, while the ships are moving through the water and even while they're pitching. 
and it looks like a big catamaran with the with the yeah. wires tensioning the ships. Right, right. And what was funny is even though um, even though the the sack would maintain course, like if I was going to steer a course of one eight zero, the carrier's heft, the gross tonnage of the carrier would drag us to the left. So even though we're pointed one eight zero. If you look at the track, it's this big arc as the carrier dragged the, you know, dragged the, the, two, the two ships, you know, kind of to the side. Um, and then you just, you teach people momentum control. And so the, okay. the controls that you give in the, you know, they're little tiny changes in RPM of the engine and little tiny course changes. And then you wait to see what happens. Collisions happen when, you over control the course or the, or the speed and can happen when somebody gets impatient and doesn't wait for the momentum to catch up to the ship and then gives more orders or gives countermanding orders. And that's when you get into trouble. And okay. so it's, it, you know, heavily trained. And so the neat thing is I learned how to do unreps on the carrier as part of the training process. I got 175 unreps as the CEO of the Sacramento. When I, when I showed up at Nimitz, I knew how to unrep. And so I could just sit back in my chair and I could just teach people how to unrep and how to wait. Um, to your question about which was best, captain of a carrier, the captain of a United States Navy large deck nuclear powered aircraft carrier is the best job in the galaxy ever, hands down. I could have died right then and been just fine. You could have left me there for 10 years and I've been just fine. You become one with the ship and it's awesome. It is awesome. Um, it's the best job ever. Now, as a striker commander a couple of years later, that was the most fun because I don't have to do anything. I had all these professional captains and knew what they were doing. So I just flew two times a day, worked out, ate what I wanted. You know, if they called me to ask me for guidance or something, I'd tell them something, but I didn't do it anything <laughs> nice. that's an admiral they all they all did the work and so yeah that was kind of how that runs so uh i i commanded uh i was exo carl vincent for for uh almost two years then ceo of the sacramento for a year and a half went to shore duty at air pack as readiness picked up nimitz and i was nimitz ceo for 30 months in between all those jobs i went back and forth to the pentagon uh, and then uh, I went from the Pentagon to see a struggle commander on Ike, did double deployment back-to-back -to, -back to the Gulf. Um, Shorty Gordney, four-star Fleet Forces Command, said we're going to war against Iran. So, you know, we had that tension going when I was CO Ike. They brought us back, reskid the flight deck, sent us right back out with the cruiser, and the whole theater depressurized when President Obama put General Austin in there. And we didn't actually, you know, do that, as you know from history. So. Right. But I had those two deployments, um, came back uh, in June of 13 and went to the Pentagon for the last four years of my Navy uh, career. I noticed you didn't say the Pentagon tour was your favorite. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying. That's actually why I got out of the Marine Corps. I, weird. Five tours in the Pentagon, none voluntary. Right. Yeah, I, I got offered uh, three years on the IG staff at the Pentagon, and that's when I dropped my letter and said, I think, uh, I think I'm going to go fly airplanes somewhere else. But, uh, but I had already done three years on the ground. But, I'll give you uh, a public service announcement. There are people who are really proud of not ever going to the Pentagon with long careers. And I got to tell you, we need the best operators back there. And, and um, you know, we need, we need really smart, fired up people that'll, that'll go. So you kind of have to go do it. The neat thing is, after five tours, I knew exactly how the Pentagon worked. Um, and I could maneuver through that bureaucracy pretty well, especially in the requirements and programming world, which were my last two jobs were. Nice. Okay. 
I got a couple quick questions for you. Nasty. Okay. Number one, how many flight hours did you uh, retire with in Tomcat or a, a total, you know, tactical aviation, naval aviation? And number two, did you ever have your hand on the ejection handle? <laughs> I pulled the ejection handle. Uh, so... 3,750 hours total, 3,000 in Tomcats, 3,060, um, 500 hours in Super Hornets. Um, and I flew Super Hornets as a hobby, as a Nimitz CO and a, and a striker commander, only in the daytime and, and usually just refuelers. They didn't want any risk. Uh, got 1,240 traps. Got my thousandth trap as CO and Nimitz. Uh, and let's see what it says here. March 16th of 2008 on my, my big 1,000th trap thing right in front of me. I pulled the ejection handle in an F-14A as an instructor pilot in August of 1987 in a RAG airplane uh, down off the coast of San Clemente, California. So uh, put, put an airplane in the water. So, yes, I do have one of those. Oh, you got to swim in the cold water too then. I did. So two, which means you did too. No, no. Uh, one of our uh, previous uh, one of our previous uh, shows, uh, Gent was coming off of San Clemente and uh, pulled it at night, and he said, you know, it sucked because it was it was black night. He couldn't see shit. It was about six to eight foot seas, and it just kept dumping him into the water. You know, he he said he'd be sitting there fat, dumb, and happy, and the next thing he knows, he's underwater and getting dunked and tumbled, and and it was about an hour. Yeah. And, and and while he was there, a, a forty seven came over, hovered over him, and left. He's like. What, did they not see me? What the hell? So he spent an hour and 15 in the water before they came back and got him. But the, but the helo needed gas, and so they left without him, and, and another helo came and picked him up. Oh, wow. But, yeah. Uh, it was right at noon on a gorgeous blue day. Just beautiful outside, and it was yeah. nice out there. So. Yeah. Was that uh, engine engine failure, hydraulic failure? What uh, what led up to your ejection? This story is actually out there in a couple of places. Um uh, and it, it's pretty funny. The first, the first one that I've seen that's pretty damn funny is uh, Viz Viscara, Mark Viscara did a, a thing called Tomcat Tales. And it's a bunch of storytelling on, yeah. We, we it, had another it, guest um, uh, that was a part of Tomcat Tales. Okay. So, so Slammer Richardson was in my backseat, and he's a, he was a student pilot. Was that the guy you had? No. No. Uh, uh, Pester. P Pester. Pester. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So, um, there's a whole bunch of storytelling. And what they did was, at, at Hook a couple of years ago, at Kill a couple of years ago, they interviewed me about the, the story I'm about to tell you. And they interviewed Slammer, who was in the back seat, about the same story. And then they played off each other. And it's hilarious. Besides the Tomcat Tales um, section that I did, I haven't. I haven't really talked to anybody else on, on the podcast about, about the thing. So the three of us are in, in a good space. Um, so, so I was an instructor in VF-124 in August of 1987. I got there in May right after my first sea tour. I was an instructor pilot and an instructor landing signal officer. And I took Slammer, who was a student pilot on his way to the tactics phase, out on a hop we called the flip-flop hop. And what you would do is you put a student pilot in the back seat and the instructor pilot would demonstrate kind of how the airplane flies 
tactically. Um, you remember in the Harrier, there were your, your corner airspeed, your best turn, your best instantaneous turn rate, biffing, you know, how you do all that stuff, what the airplane feels like. Um, and so we demonstrate that, talk through that. And then we also demonstrated different ways to do loops. Uh, so of course, you know, standard 4G loop. And then, and then in the Tomcat, one of the strengths is getting vertical. So kind of doing that egg where you come back down and extend the vertical showing that. And then because the airplane had this kind of nasty um, departure sort of phase out of the vertical, you showed three vertical recoveries. The first one was on your stomach, 20 degrees, so 70 degrees nose high, go to zero speed, the airplane falls away. Second one was 110 degrees, so you're on your back 20 degrees, go to zero airspeed, fall away. And then the one that got everybody's attention was straight up. So 90 degrees straight up, go to zero airspeed. The airplane does all kinds of weird octaflugrons and stuff. And the idea, and it, and it can look to you like you're in a spin. And so like all of our flight training um, in the Tomcat in this phase, you taught the students, you know, keep your hands off everything. And I used to tell people when I was in the backseat, show me your hands feet on the deck, let the airplane flop around. It's going to flop around. And finally, when it comes out of it and it's going nose down, now now recover the airplane. This vertical recovery, if you got it parked pretty nose high, would uh, would water your eyes and ring your bell a little bit when you're banging around. Because that, you know, we talked about flying tennis sports, a huge moment arm. So right, you were right. on the end of that moment arm and whipping around, right? Um, so I had been taught... And I did in my first squadron use the idea where you could go up in the Tomcat and right about a hundred knots, you go up and, and the idea was, sorry, on the vertical recoveries, the pilot's gone up. He's not looking inside. He's looking at the bogey and he realizes now he's stuck. And yeah. so what do you do when the airplane falls off? You know, get the air, get the nose out of the vertical, but then let it go and let it do its thing. So that was the idea. So now you're stuck. What do you do? But uh, I learned in my rag class as a student, that you could go up and about a hundred knots shove the stick forward and the airplane would translate kind of on its belly and do this real nice kind of vertical pirouette. And then you come down on a guy. So I used that. And so I was briefing slammer in the brief, by the way, there is a tactical use of this vertical straight up thing where you get, get there on purpose without enough airspeed to go up and right past that hundred knots, shove the stick forward and the airplane go like this. And so, we do the brief, we go out, and the reason it's called a flip-flop hop is you go out, instructors in the front, do all the demos, student in the back, come back to Miramar, land, hot pump, switch seats, hot pump meaning uh, put a new uh, bag of gas in the airplane, mm -hmm. swap seats, and now the instructor's sitting in the back, students in the front. The two first fam hops when the, when the student pilot's flying and you're in the back as an as a instructor pilot, and this hop, scariest, because you have no controls. <laughs> and all you can do is narrate to the student. And so it's always kind of a stressful hop. But usually in the front. Quick question, Nasty. Uh, so you just uh, taught me something new. In the Tomcat, uh, in the RAG, you, you, there wasn't uh, a trainer with had, had controls in the back seat? Nope. Oh, no, no shit. As a, a Tomcat trainer. Yeah. Oh, shit. Okay, I didn't know that. Okay, this is, this is yep. kind of serious now. Yeah. Sorry. Please continue. You know, it's kind of like any airplane, um, you know, that's only single seat. You know, think F-35 right now. There are no two-seat yeah. F-35s. Yeah. And so it's the same sort of idea back then. But still, you know, pilot, instructor pilot gets in the back. Of course, you learn how to work the back seat, which is always a trick. And, and now you're sitting in the back of this guy in the front who, who can easily kill you in a heartbeat. Right. Um, 
But anyway, we go out. But typically, the first part of the flip-flop hop, the instructor's in there, and you're, you know, you know how to fly an airplane. So anyway, Slammer and I go out, and we do we do all the maneuvers and stuff, and we do the vertical maneuvers. We do the straight-up maneuver. You know, we get up there like this, and I'm trying like crazy to push the airplane over, and it won't go. You know, I'm shoving on the stick, and I'm shoving on the stick, and I'm keeping it parked straight up, and it won't go, and it keeps translating, you know, pretty much straight up. And the first time falls out of the vertical, and it's like, man, you know, whops, whips around. We're getting bashed around the airplane. It kind of wobbles around, and we, we, you know, recover the airplane and start flying back. And so we completed all of it. And so we're we're about 70 degrees, or, or sorry, 70 miles to the southwest of San Clemente Island, um, you know, 100 and some miles from San Diego. Got 6,600 pounds of gas, so enough to maneuver and, and stuff. And, and we're heading back to Miramar. And uh, fateful words, I say to Slammer, hey, you know, we're complete here, heading back, you know, flip-flop. Is there anything else you'd like to see before you're flying it through? And he goes, yeah, I want, I want to see you do that vertical pushover thing you briefed me on, the tactical part. Okay, lock the harness up, we go, you know. So start at 15,000 feet, and you just pull the airplane straight up into the pure vertical and park it there and, and just keep it just straight up. Yep. And uh, I'm dancing on the rudders and, and in full, full military power, not an afterburner, dancing on the rudders and keeping this thing straight up. And the airplane starts to backslide. And when the Tomcat backslides, you get a bunch of blue smoke in the cockpit from the oil it's burning and stuff. And then we had a little 69 cent piece of string that was screwed to the nose. You could tell when the airplane was flying straight. We had a yaw, yaw trim and yep. we had a ball, of course, but you always looked at the yaw string to see if you were flying straight or not. And so when you started going backwards, of course, in the clear blue sky, you can't see anything, but you can see when the yaw string flips around. So I used to kind of, you know, perk my head up, look over the dash, see the yaw string flip around and tell Slammer, you know, we're a hot mic and then go Slammer, hey, the yaw string flipped around. Right about the airplane slides back on. And I had it parked completely straight up. I mean, the airplane isn't coming out of the vertical at all. It's, it's rotating a little bit due to the torque on the engine. We're sliding backwards. I'm trying to push on the airplane. I haven't let go of the controls all the way to zero speed, sliding backwards. I'm pushing on the stick. That's when I rudders keep it straight up. And the left engine stalls. This huge bang, yellow fireball goes by my left ear. <laughs> yeah, fire shot out the, like, shot, fire shot out the intake. <laughs> yeah, shot out the intake. Whoa! It, I mean, scared the shit out of both of us. And so what you do for an engine stall, and the, and the airplane starts coming off to that direction because we're full power on the left side. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it goes off, left stall light, lights going off, flashing. And so you're bold face for engine stalls. You pull both throttles to idle. It doesn't say pending flight regime, it just is pulling idle. So we're still coming off at pretty much no air speed over the intake. And I pulled both throttles to idle and the right engine stalled. Bang, fire out the right side now. And now the airplane's doing what it always does, coming out of the vertical with that extra added attraction of the asymmetric thrust, starting it on its back, flipping around, doing the circus ride. And um, so now we're getting, we're getting the crap beat out of us. And because Slammer was in the back seat, he was thinking back seat, last spin procedures. Because I'm in the front seat trying to figure out what's going on and very, very much focused on restarting at least one of the engines before we have to eject. I don't have that nice and neutral backboard of show me your hands, put your feet on the, you know, on the deck, show me your hands, you know, what's your airspeed, what's your turn needle, you know, you go through your, what's your angle of attack to determine whether the airplane is actually spinning, okay. right? 
And so what ends up happening is we start running around, you know, all this uh, and airplanes oscillating back and forth and I'm not patient enough. And so I go, nope, this airplane's spinning. I'm going to force it out of the, you know, the vertical. And it was just whipping like crazy. I've got to get the nose down so I can get 300 knots uh, on the airplane so I can air start one of the engines. Because if I don't, we're going to have to eject. So I put controls in too early. And what I did was I kept the airplane in a spin, um, basically didn't allow it to recover, even though all I had to do was really let everything go. And then I might have had enough altitude to, uh, to get an engine started. But uh, that we never got to that point. We passed 10,000 feet out of control, which is mandatory eject altitude. Lammer goes 10,000 feet. And, and I'm like, I didn't say a word. Like, okay, somebody's going to recover this airplane and, and we're going to go home. We got to 8,000 feet. It's like, holy shit. Okay, I don't have it. And, and right about then. So you're going through denial, uh, <laughs> acceptance. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. All the stages of grief right then. And, <laughs> oh, man. And it's like, oh, my God. You know, at 8,000 feet, I said, nope, I don't have it. Eject, eject, eject. So I reached up, pulled the handle. And as I'm pulling the handle, you know, this big old, uh, you know, loops that we had, I watched the canopy come off. And it was really funny. You guys know in tactical airplane, the canopy is like right in front of you. you put your, it's like a car window. You put your, you put your hand on the sill, right? And hold on right, to the canopy. Right. But it looks like it's eight feet in front of me. Wow. It looks like it's eight feet in front of me and it comes off with this boom, bunch of brown smoke as the SMDC lines went off. Slow motion. I'm not kidding. Slow motion. And and then I pulled the handles down to my chest, center of my chest. Nothing happened because time expansion. Nothing. I'm just sitting there like, oh, is this seat going to work? And then I went out and, you know, hurt the shit out of my back. It really, really hurt. I thought, well, that's where I broke my back because I remember, and thinking this entire time, well, you don't, you don't feel pain with the adrenaline of a, you know, something like this. And so I must have really hurt my back. And this is in the quarter second that it takes to go out of the, out of the airplane. Yeah. And there's like this, this bam, bam, bam. You know, I see the. I see the airplane side number as the nose spins away as I'm flipping over. I see my feet with the, with the leg restraints on them and then a big flash of orange when the parachute opens and then blam, I'm in the chute. Wow. And uh, I had the face curtain in my hand and I let it go. I'm like, oh, no, ah, you know, because you keep the face curtain, right, as a souvenir. Right, sure. Yes. Anyway, I look over, I look over his slammer and, and he's, he looks like he's dead. It, you know, it's like the previous story. He look, he's hanging down, his head's down, his arms are down. He's looking like goose in uh in the first top gun you know going right. down I'm like oh my god i killed him and then i start going through my my you know my survival procedures and stuff and and uh and i look back over at him and he's uh he's he's back up and he looks like a you know he's flying his parachute and he's looking like a model you know right out of the right out of the movies you know on how to do a parachute ride yeah. um but it was it's just kind of funny we uh we so I'm trying to get all my stuff out. I'm trying to see whether my raft will come out. And I go, okay, I got to inflate my LPA first. So I inflate that thing, and it just pushes my head right. I mean, in the pool when you do water survival, those things barely work. And well, for real, they're like rocks. Bam! And I'm, now I'm looking up. I can't do anything but check my chute. So I got my <laughs> my chin stuck up there. I have to take my oxygen mask off. Helmet rotates off the back. Finally, pull my chin down. So I'm kind of bareheaded coming down. I try to pull my. Uh, my raft out and the little handle on the seat pan, I pulled the handle and it feels like it comes off in my hand. It's like, okay, that's not working. That's kind of weird. So I'm walking around trying to see if my raft is out. 
And I get this idea that if I can get Sam to tell me my rest is out, rest is out, I'm going to be okay. So I start yelling at him. I'm like, Sam! Because I want him, I want him, is my raft out? You know, kind of, Sam! And he's got his helmet on. We're a couple hundred yards away, and I'm screaming. Finally, he, he sees me, and he sees me yelling. And, and so you get this four-line release in the parachute where you can you pull these little toggles, and the lines come off the back of the parachute, and it dumps a little air out the back, and it keeps your oscillating. Well, it also gives you about four knots of forward speed. So both of us pulled our four-line release, point towards each other, and, and now we're driving towards each other at about eight miles an hour, and it's obvious we're going to hit. I'm like, holy shit! And we go by each other. I, the canopies must have touched because we're just this big long, whoa! And so we, we stay pretty far apart. And uh, end up going down and, and getting in the water and, and getting in the raft. And, and so I get in my raft, you know, the – Dropped my coke fittings right as my boots hit the water. The water was pretty nice. It was nice and blue outside. It's a gorgeous day. And um, there's an E2 one over us, and he had watched us eject. And he comes out, hey, look at that, an air show. Oh, they ejected. So he becomes on-team commander. We actually jumped out in the middle of an exercise. Uh, eight Navy ships, six helicopters. And so um, we had helicopters over us in a heartbeat. When the E2 went over us, a report goes back to the beach that one guy was in good condition. That was me because I had done the little maneuver to get up in my one-man raft sitting straight up. And Slammer was laying on his stomach. And so they, they said, well, the second guy's in fair condition. Well, what Slammer was doing, he's a surfer. He was paddling over to me um, like, a, like on a surfboard in his little raft. He's going, shit, that was awesome. No. Holy <laughs> shit. He's like yelling, grinning, you know, here we are. And we, we tied up uh, kind of like the Adams Family uh, old series, kind of opposite each other. And we're on these four-foot crests. We come up on this crest, and I see this. And, of course, we're all I'm totally terrified of sharks. We come up on the crest, and I see this gigantic animal on the next wave over. And there's a, there's a nose, a fin, a long back, and a huge fin, and then – you know, and then, and then water, we go back down in the trough and I'm trying to tell Slammer, there's something over there. We come back up. It's the airplane. Oh, the Tomcat, oh. the Tomcat had landed flat and it was, and the reserve buoyancy had put it back up on the surface. There was the, the fin in the front was the windscreen with no canopy. The fin in the back was the tails. And it was just sitting on top of the water with this big BF-124 paint scheme on it that subsequently sank. Oh, wow. Two helicopters came pick us up. One, one grabbed Sam, one grabbed me. And then, uh, and then we uh, we went back you know back to Miramar and <laughs> sitting in the skipper's office dripping wet trying to tell him what I had done, and he goes, "God damn it, nasty!" He goes, "That tactical maneuver that was good in block 90s when you were in 51, and he's block 135. That doesn't work." I'm like, "Well, that would have been good to know, you know." And uh, <laughs> it was about five weeks. I went through three boards. They all passed, although the safety board where they they basically said pilot error, pilot error, pilot error, kind of you know sucks the ego out of you for a while um about five weeks before i got back in the airplane and uh, we went out east over land and in the cane moa i did uh with this poor guy in the back seat I said, okay we're gonna go do one of these vertical recoveries it's most terrifying almost most terrifying time of my life you know where the ejection and going up there and trusting the fact that it ain't going to do the same thing to me again it went just fine recovered the airplane flew back home and that's enough flew back home and landed <laughs> that's the ejection story that's a that is a great story, my friend. Thank it you. Really is. It really is. <laughs> Holy smokes! Oh, I That's know what probably, I was going to ask. You guys probably generated a couple of podcasts t- today. 
Yeah, no, this yeah. is great content. This is the, this is why we started this uh, show because we we fly with all these professionals and we know people who know other professionals. As Curly put us on to you, and Yogi and Master obviously as well. And there are so many great stories out there, and Everybody. people love hearing them. And so, as Fig put it, you know, you're at a dinner party, and the next thing you know, you've got an audience around you. Everyone wants to talk aviation. It's like these. This is great stuff. Um, yeah. So, so that's that's how we started this, and we're having a ball with it. Yeah. Uh, actually, one of the questions I had, uh, backing up a little bit, was: so when you're CEO of the Nimitz, did you find the LSOs graded you easier or harder, or was it uh, was it ruthless? <laughs> <laughs> it was ruthless, man. It was ruthless, and I would oh, go back man. on the platform all the time as the captain, uh, and uh, you know, stand back there doing that. Uh, I had a blast with them. I also, when I was XO of the, uh, the Carl Benson, I didn't fly when I was XO, but I'd go back there a lot. But mm-hmm. no, we had this great relationship, you know, between uh, between me on the bridge and them on the platform. I'd, I'd call them all the time and go, hey, this is what I'm seeing. What do you think? And this is the kind of course. I'm thinking I'm trying to take away some of the role or some of the pitch. Which do you want? So it was really great. And when I'd go flying, they were they were – it was even, it was like, they weren't ruthless. Like we're going to, we're going to screw the CEO or, or, and it wasn't, um, it wasn't Santa Claus either. You know, they read me the riot act. Um, I've got a real funny LSO story for you about learning how to break the F-18. So yeah, I got pretty good at, at doing the break at the, at the aft end of the ship at a Tomcat. And, um, I could come in at 600 knots and, and about 400 feet and just yank the crap out of the airplane, right, right. Just before the stern, and um, come around the corner and do okay with it. So I started to fly the F-18, and I go, okay, I'm going to try this one day. We were out at the ship. I came in, exact same, uh, you know, kind of process in the Tomcat, yanked the crap out of the F-18, and I looked down, and I'm right over the LSO platform. Because the F-18, you know, Tomcat with its wings back would decelerate, but it, in, in the turn would be like a mile. And so it would, you'd be at just the right, the correct right. beam distance. Well, in the Super Hornet, that thing, that thing's got a living wing, and I, I did this pirouette, even at 400 knots, and I end up right over the top of the LSO platform, <laughs> very sheepishly and with a lot of embarrassment, turn away, do this really horrible approach, land, I get, they come in, they're grinning, they're like, what the fuck, Captain? And, <laughs> and, uh, and I, go, I go, hey, I didn't. You know, and and they gave me a no grade for my pattern. It's like, you know, it's a no grade, right? I go, yeah, give me my no grade. That was awful. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> and then this one guy says, uh, the fighter red room I was in, the team had one of the fighter LSOs. He's the young lieutenant. And he goes, hey, Captain, grab a cup of coffee. I'm going to teach you how to break the F-18. And it turns out it's a double break. You come in and you break the airplane. You still at 600 knots, even stroke the burner later on yank the crap out of the airplane, 90 degrees, and then let go, count one potato, two potato, ballistic, and then yank another 90 degrees hard, and you squat the airplane out at the 180, and it looks really cool because the airplane just squats. It doesn't even, doesn't even turn. It just, it just squats right out there. And then you come around a corner, and you land from there, and that's how you break the F-18. So I learned how to break the F-18 from the LSOs. That's awesome. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I didn't – there's two it's, – it's a great question because um, – there's two times that I didn't impart my, hey, I was a, you know, whatever, there I was. One way I was LSOs and the Nimitz, it was a good partnership. The second was because I was a nuke 
ship CEO when I was the strategic commander of the Ike. I let I let the the CEO of the ship market, you know, make his own decisions. He would come to me and say, "I'd like to do this with the plant." I'd say, well, "Okay, your decision." And I said, "If you're coming to ask my permission or stuff, I'm not giving you any because it's your it's your nuke plant. I'm not gonna get in the way." But I always felt that I didn't want to come down on somebody because I had been there before, and I didn't want to lead that way. So the same thing with the LSOs. I just had a blast, you know playing with them and they knew my experience and they knew the a6 story and they knew i spent a lot of time out there and, and i'd grown up as an lso so it was neat it was kind of neat to have that partnership right that's awesome well that's kind of the neat thing about you know growing into those leader leadership positions anyway is is that you learn how to trust you mentioned all those professional captains working for you and 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 you learn how to trust the people who have experience and you know, they're there for a reason. It isn't their first day on the job. So, so that's kind of cool to see when, when a leader does that, because there are the leaders out there who micromanage and that drives you Nobody nuts. Nobody likes a micromanager, man. Oh, Nobody. it drives you nuts. But then the guy who learns to trust his leaders underneath him. Um, and it's, it's clear that you, uh, you know, you did that. Uh, your experiences brought you into that. So, um, no, that, that was really I, cool. It's a, it's a hallmark of my leadership style. I did that on purpose a lot and was very vocal about extending trust and delegating so that I could, excuse me, get the best out of my team. Uh, that's the way that I led. And, and I, cause I knew what it felt like to be micromanaged and I knew what it felt like to be trusted and to be able to, you know, learn. And so I would always say, and, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing some work in this area, by the way. And, uh, and I would always say to them, look, there's only two things that a leader should do is give guidance and remove barriers. And, and I'm going to give you guidance a whole bunch, you know, and, and, and I'll get barriers out of your way when you can't execute my guidance. But what, you know, I'm delegating the task to you and I trust you to get it done. Um, and I just want to help you. So you just, you just tell me when you need my help. But other than that, go do your job because I'll tell you, as we've seen that, the inevitable result from a micromanaging leader is, is a very poor result because that micromanaging leader is not getting the value of the perspectives from his team. I know you guys see that in cockpits around the world. You see that in cockpit gradients. You see that in organizations. You see that with, and hear that from people you talk to. It's universal. Well, you're spot on on that, Nasty. Spot on you. Yes, sir. I, I could listen to I could listen to stories from from nasty all, all day oh like, as, as could I we're gonna run we're gonna run you out of time we, we are kind of, we, we've hit we've gone past the time you've allotted for us so thank you for that but let me ask other uh, one other quick thing you, you touched about it about going to nuke school and you said was that about 18 months you said yeah um, I started in December of 99 at stupid study uh, okay. anybody who either had bad grades or was uh, an old man uh, would would go an extra uh, month at Nuka Power School in Charleston, South Carolina, and then finished up in May of 2001. Okay. There's essentially three phases for us commanders going to carriers. There's six months of academics, and then there's four months of academics and standing watch on a plant. In my case, I went to New York to do that. And then the last phase is 15 weeks at Naval Reactors headquarters where you learn leadership and more nuke stuff. Um, and more tests and examinations by the four star and his staff on being able to run a nuclear power plant. So you, you do all of that, no matter what role you play, brand new recruit all the way to the commanding officer of an aircraft carrier or a, uh, an attack or ballistic submarine. 
Yeah. So okay. they, they really want you to understand the the, uh, the workings of the nuke plan. I guess that, that comes down from uh, the days of Admiral Rickover then, I assume. Yes, it does. He's the one that, the father of the nuclear Navy. That's Great connection, uh, Pete. Uh, the um, when they started this, um, it's his standards that have been retained in the program. But when they started this, they were thinking about it like, okay, you're underwater in a submarine somewhere, stuck on the bottom maybe, and you have to figure out a way to fix the nuclear power plant, whatever's wrong. And so they teach you everything. Uh, with with the idea that you know you're going to be down there going okay change that bolt and put this bolt in you know or something like that so that that kind of stayed uh, all the way through the the program and so so they train you um, the neat thing is you know if we if you and I talk about naval aviation safety and I talk about a safety record I'm gonna I'm gonna knock on wood right next to me right the nuclear power safety record I can talk about that all day long and not have any kind of because the way we train, the way we maintain, the way we build those systems, we are guaranteed um, not to have, you know, an, an incident, a serious incident. Now, little things happen all the time, but we care about the littlest, tiniest things, and we mitigate um, those and other risks that happen such that, such that it is extraordinarily safe. But in order to do that, you know, people like me, uh, post-command commanders at 42 years old, are going to sit in class for a year and a half to make sure we get it right. That's awesome. That, yeah, that it's awesome. fascinating, but awesome that they do that. So, Fig, do you have any other questions that you can? Listen, I I could go on and on. Oh, as could nasty I. Questions. I'm going to ask if you'd be willing to join us at some point again in the future. We're having a ball. Absolutely. I don't. I, I think I've told you my whole career. Uh, you know, so I would. I. Uh, we're chipping away here because I know every, every time we ask something, I know something else falls out and you're like, oh, I could talk about that, but I don't want to know because these guys are taking up my time. So, you know, stories, you know, stuff like you, you kind of mentioned, you know, well, I never had my helmet off unless I was over, you know, so it might have been over Iraq and on a combat mission. <laughs> well, you know, these are st stories that nobody knows and no, no nobody's going to hear if we can't, if we can't like, uh, you know, every time you tell a story i i it it triggers a memory i'm like oh gosh i kind of forgot about that so you know the more, the more and of course a single malt scotch always helps uh, it's just the wrong time of the day for me to do that uh, do, do you have can you think of a kind of a outlandish funny story that you could relate that happened while you were flying if not it's okay we'll come back uh yeah we'll probably have to come back um, okay. I, I, uh, I mean, there's, there's things we, you know, the shenanigans, shenanigans. the shenanigans yes. that we did, especially in the eighties, you know, Miramar was epic in the eighties. The movie came out and became more epic, but flying during the eighties was, was just, you know, nuts. The, the eight hour or whatever, 12 hour, I guess, 12 hour bottle of throttle rule did not exist. And so while it was advisory that you not drink alcohol, you know, Within 50 before, feet, wouldn't before it? Before that, we used to, within, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't drink alcohol within 50 feet and don't smoke within 12 hours. Right. Um, I mean, the number of times that you probably should not flown because you didn't have your last drink until sometime very close to flying, you know, <laughs> was uh, we, we uh, the, the one, I'll, I'll, I'll keep that thread going. Very early in my, my uh, J.O. tour, me and this guy went out on a cross country to build some hours. We landed at Tulsa, Oklahoma, which used to be favorably called the Tulsa Turnaround. 
it was great. There's a you know a couple of bars right there. The the staff that was there was pretty fun to be around, and they were usually at the bars. And and when I say the staff, you know what I mean. But yes. Anyway, we did not go to bed, and we did not stop drinking until about an hour before man up. And so we flew back to Miramar in a Tomcat from Tulsa uh, back into the break because the guy in my backseat had duty that day and he couldn't get out of duty. And so we only had an overnight and we flew back and he is hurting. And he's the one that kept me awake or, or kept me up all night. I'm like, look, I can't go. He goes, oh, come on, Nasty, let's go. You know, and so, but he's hurting. He is really hurting. And I had, I had sleep, but I had stopped. Uh, drinking at some point, you know, prior to that, but we're flying back. And so I'm good enough, but I, we're, we're going back to Miramar from Oklahoma straight in the sun, but you can't be because in the morning the sun's behind us. But anyway, we're going there. We, neither of us, it's too bright outside to see. I got the visor down and he is hurting in the back seat. He gives me the radios all the way back when he's kind of, you know, struggling back there. He goes, Hey, just take the radios on the way back. Usually the back seat gets the radios. And I'm mad at him because he's, he's got me in this thing. And we're going back early because he's got duty. He can't get out of duty and stuff. So I take him into the break at Miramar. And I broke the shit out of that airplane <laughs> with him in the back seat, hurting like crazy. And he is yelling at me through a six and a half G break at, at 400, 500 knots at Miramar. And he's going, you son of a bitch. And I'm dragging him through the break. <laughs> so all that that we probably shouldn't have done. Bounce his head off the canopy. Yeah, that's right. Not going to set out the cat. Yeah, look right, blank, go left. Um, but uh, I'm sure there's a lot of those things there. What, what's really funny is, and I, I did intimate to you guys, I'm doing some work in leadership, and I've been able to been able to to talk to some groups about leadership and and what I believe about leadership and stuff. And I, and I'll tell you what's amazing to me. Um, you know the the company I work in now gives me the opportunity to, to talk to various leaders at various levels about leadership, no matter the audience, no matter the question, I have a story. And so I'm putting together all of these stories and, and attaching leadership lessons to them. And what I learned when I did the story and just amazing to your point about having stories, there's so much awesome experience that came from 36 years of being in the Navy and driving ships and, and flying airplanes and, all that kind of stuff that, that lends itself to learning and teaching and leadership and mentorship and that, you know, that, that stuff about delegation and micromanagement and trust. I mean, that came from, that came from 36 years and the, and the, the last 16 years were, were really when those big um, leadership jobs happen where I could test all this stuff out. And it's the same here as it is in a big company, as a small business, the cockpit of a commercial airplane, all of that stuff, all that stuff applies. So, I've had a really good time at thinking about, you know, leadership and storytelling and, and things that, you know, people might want to listen to over. Well, thank you for your service, uh, nasty. Uh, and thank you for all the great stories today. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. It's, uh, uh, you know, you're talking to, well, I guess fig you retired as an LC, right? Out of reserves. Yeah, uh, yeah, I had 32 years total, retired as a lieutenant colonel out of the Air Guard, Nasty. I started in the Marine Corps, and I finished in the Air Guard as actually a squadron commander of a C-130. Yeah. Uh, oh, congrats. Was, Thanks for yeah, your service. It is just, it, it's so familiar, and it feels so good, and you're just a genuine, down-to-earth, great guy, I can tell. 
and and the billets that you've held and and I know a lot of people's careers are better off because uh, because you were in positions of leadership. I know uh, Nasty and or uh, uh, Yogi and Master are alive, uh, no in no small part due to your uh, leadership and competence. Uh, um, it, it's amazing. So so Admiral, thank you for your service and thank you for joining us today. Um, it's been an well, absolute blast. Uh, you guys, I tell you, this has been a treat. You know, you, you all know, the three of us, storytelling is great to, to reimmerse ourselves in this stuff. I've been so lucky to have these opportunities. You know, talking to you guys is fun. Telling stories is fun. Tailhook's in a week, so going back to Tailhook and, you know, get immersed in that again. So, yeah, I, I loved it, and, and uh, I'm so humbled and honored to have been able to serve and then be lucky enough to be given all these great opportunities, and it's just, it's been a it's been a great life and to be able to share some of that with people and to be able to make a difference in people's lives is, has just been really, uh, I have a lot of gratitude for that. Um, and so talking to you guys today was awesome. Anytime, if you got anything else that you, you think I might add to the, the content, I, I'd love to come back with you guys. Oh, we'd love to have you back. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I'll close it out here then and say that, uh, first of all, thank you to Dave Hamilton over at the Mac Geek Gab who gave us the technical expertise and the uh, support to help put this together. The Mac Geek Gab is the best tech podcast going out there. So thank you, Dave, for all your help and support. If you have any questions or comments or want to reach out to us uh, and we can get uh, questions to Nasty uh, through us, you can write to fig at so there I was dot us or me at repeat so there I was dot us. You can follow us on Facebook at so there I was dot us slash Facebook or Twitter, so there I was, .us slash Twitter. Again, uh, it's been a thrill to have you with us today. Take care, and check six. quarter mile and someone asks you who your mother is you don't know that's how focused you are okay call the ball now it's a knife fight in a phone booth and remember full power in the wire your IQ rolls back to that of an ape <laughs>